0: Chapter fourteen OF Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker This Librivox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen The Story of Orpheus and Eurydice The deeds of the immortal gods were told and sung at every fireside in Greece, and among these hero tales there was none more popular than the story of how Apollo built for Neptune the famous wall of Troy. Many musicians would have been glad to perform a similar service for the mere fame that it would bring them, but they feared that the attempt to imitate Apollo would only result in failure and ridicule. So no mortal ever presumed to say that he could make rocks and stones obedient to the spell of his music. There was, however, one musician, Amphion, king of Thebes, who was anxious to prove that his playing was equal to Apollo's, but knowing how unwise it was to vie with an immortal, he determined not to test his skill publicly, but to carry out his cherished plan at night, when men were dreaming in their beds. He was eager to build a high wall around Thebes, and to build it as Apollo did, the wall of Troy, so when the sunset and darkness crept over the earth, Amphion stood just outside the city gates and began to play on his lyre immediately the stones rose from the ground and moved rhythmically into their places in the wall which soon rose strong and high a firmer defence than any that could be built by men's hands another famous musician was Arion, who won not only praise for his great skill in playing but also much wealth whenever a contest was held in which a prize of money was given Arion was usually a competitor and, as his music was really finer than that of most players, he easily won the reward. Once he was returning from a festival in Sicily, whither many musicians had gone on account of the rich prize, and as he had come off victor, he was leaving the foreign shores well laden with gold. Unfortunately, he happened to embark on a ship owned by pirates, who had heard of his great wealth, and were plotting to seize whatever part of it he had on board. As the easiest way to do this was to kill him, the pirates began to bind him with ropes that he might not be able to struggle when thrown overboard. Arion calmly accepted his fate, but begged the brutal crew to allow him to play once upon his lyre before going to his death. To this the pirates consented, and when the wonderful music filled the air, a school of dolphins swam toward the ship, and kept close beside it, charmed by Arion's playing. Feeling sure that there was some magic in the music, the pirates hastened to throw the player and his lyre into the sea without waiting to bind him, but Arion did not drown as they had expected, for a friendly dolphin caught him on its back and swam with him to the shore, where he landed in safety. When, in the course of time, Arion died, the gods placed him, together with his lyre and the kindly dolphin, in the sky as constellations. The most famous of all musicians, except the one who played in the shining halls of Olympus, was Orpheus, son of Apollo, and of the muse Calliope. When he was a mere child, his father gave him a lyre, and taught him to play upon it. But Orpheus needed very little instruction, for as soon as he laid his hand upon the strings, the wild beasts crept out of their lairs to crouch beside him, the trees on the mountainside moved nearer so they might listen, and the flowers sprang up in clusters all round him, unwilling to remain any longer asleep in the earth. When Orpheus sought in marriage the golden-haired Eurydice, there were other suitors for her hand, but though they brought rich gifts gathered out of many lands, they could not win the maiden's love, and she turned from them to bestow her hand upon Orpheus, who had no way to woo her but with his music. On the wedding-day there was the usual mirth and feasting, but one event occurred that cast a gloom over the happiness of the newly married pair. When Hymen, god of marriage, came with his torch to bless the nuptial feast, the light that should have burned clear and pure began to smoke ominously, as if predicting future disaster. The evil omen was fulfilled all too soon, for one day when Eurydice was walking in the meadow she met the youth Aristeus, who was so charmed with her beauty that he insisted upon staying beside her to pour his ardent speeches into her unwilling ears. To escape from these troublesome attentions Eurydice started to run away, and as she ran she stepped on a poisonous snake, which quickly turned and bit her. She had barely time to reach her home before the poison had done its work, and Orpheus heard the sad story from her dying lips. As soon as Mercury had led away the soul of Eurydice, the bereaved husband hastened to the shining halls of Olympus, and throwing himself down before Jupiter's golden throne, he implored that great ruler of gods and men to give him back his wife. There was always pity in the hearts of the gods for those who die in flowering time, so Jupiter gave permission to Orpheus to go down into Hades, and beg of Pluto the boon he craved. It was a steep and perilous journey to the kingdom of the dead, and the road was one that no mortal foot had ever trod. But through his love for Eurydice, Orpheus forgot the dangers of the way, and when he spoke her name the terrors of the darkness vanished, in his hand he held his lyre, and when he arrived at the gate of Hades, where the fierce three-headed dog Cerberus refused to let him pass, Orpheus stood still in the uncertain darkness and began to play. And as he played the snarling of the dog ceased, and the noise of its harsh breathing grew faint. Then Orpheus went on his way undisturbed, but still he played softly on his lyre, and the sounds floated far into the dismal interior of Hades where the souls of the condemned labour for ever at their tasks. Tantalus heard the music, and ceased to strive for a drop of the forbidden water. Ixion rested a moment beside his ever-revolving wheel, and Sisyphus stood listening while the rock which he must roll through all eternity fell from his wearied arms. The daughters of Danaeus lay down their urns beside the sieve into which they were for ever pouring water, and as the mournful wailing of Orpheus's lyre, told the story of his lost love, they wept then for a sorrow not their own. So plaintive indeed was the music, that all the shadowy forms that flitted endlessly by shed tears of sympathy for the player's grief, and even the cheeks of the furies were wet. When Orpheus came before the throne of Pluto, that relentless monarch repulsed him angrily as he attempted to plead his cause, and commanded him to depart. Then the son of Apollo began to play upon his lyre and through his music he told the story of his loss and besought the ruler of these myriad souls to give him the single one he craved so wonderfully did orpheus play that the hard heart of pluto was touched with pity and he consented to restore eurydice to her husband on the condition that as they went out together from the loathed country of the dead he should not once turn his head to look upon her to this strange decree orpheus gladly promised obedience so Eurydice was summoned from among the million shadow-shapes that thronged the silent halls of death. Pluto told her the condition on which her freedom was to be won, and then bade her follow her husband. During all the wearisome journey back to earth, Orpheus never forgot the promise he had made, though he often longed to give just a hurried glance at the face of Eurydice to see whether it had lost its sadness. As they neared the spot where the first faint glimmerings of light filtered down into the impenetrable darkness, Orpheus thought he heard his wife calling, and he looked quickly round to find whether she was still following him. At that moment the slight form close behind him began to fade away, and a mournful voice, seemingly far in the distance, called to him a sad farewell. He knew that no second chance would be given him to win his wife from Pluto's hold, even if he could again charm the three-headed Cerberus, or persuade Charon the grim ferryman to take him across the river, so he went forlornly back to earth, and lived in a forest cave, far from the companionship of men. At first there was only his lyre to share his solitude, but soon the forest creatures came to live beside him, and often sat listening to his music, looking exceedingly wise and sorrowful. Even in his sleepless hours, when he fancied he heard Eurydice calling, he was never quite alone, for the bat and owl, and the things that love the darkness, flitted about him, and he saw the glow-worms creep toward him out of the night-cold grass. One day a party of bacchantes found him seated outside his cave, playing the mournful music that told of his lost love, and they bade him change the sad notes to something gay so that they might dance. But Orpheus was too wrapped up in his sorrow to play any strain of cheerful music, and he refused to do as they asked the bacchantes were half maddened by their festival days of drinking and this refusal so enraged them that they fell upon the luckless musician and tore him to pieces then they threw his mangled body into the river and as the head of orpheus drifted down the stream his lips murmured again and again eurydice until the hills echoed the beloved name and the rocks and trees and rivers repeated it in mournful chorus later on the muses gathered up his remains to give them honourable burial and it is said that over Orpheus's grave the nightingale sings more sweetly than in any other spot in Greece. End of chapter 14